All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm talking to you from New York City on this, the 12th day of October 2021. And uh, before I talk to you more about today's show, I do like to remind you I'm the editor of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. We focus to a great extent on the junior exploration sector, which I think despite the recent uh, decline in that sector, I think it's one of the most exciting and promising uh, sectors that you can look at. Um, And I'll try to explain that. Uh, John Rubino and I talk the second half of today's show, uh, explain why that is the case. Uh, also, like to encourage you to consider signing up for Chen Lin's letter. What is Chen buying? What is Chen selling? ChenPicks.com is a place to go for that. And Michael Oliver, OliverMSA.com. Michael will be with us in just a moment. Um, also, like to encourage you to keep sending along your comments, uh, whatever they may be, about this show to uh, questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. And we do want to thank our sponsors. They make this show possible. Novo Resources, Eloro Resources, Hand and Metals, Labrador Gold Corp, Lion One Metals, SK Mining Corp, and Firefox Gold are the sponsors for today's show. I've titled it a sh- today's show, Three Card Monty with President Biden. Playing Three Card Monty with President Biden, that is. John Rubino, Michael Oliver, and Dr. Quentin Henning return as guests today. David Stockman was uh, going to be our guest in the second half of today's show, but a last-minute conflict uh, made it impossible for him to be with us, so uh, John Rubino will take his place in the second half of today's show. Um, In any event, President Biden asks us not to believe our lying eyes. Um, He says the U.S. border is closed. America's exit from Afghanistan has has made America safer. The $3.5 trillion human infrastructure program will cost nothing, or so it seems, because the Federal Reserve can simply create dollars out of nothing from keystrokes of a computer. In David Stockman's recent article titled Washington Idiots at Work, he suggested low IQs of elected officials in Washington are to blame for America's obviously obvious economic decline. However, I believe that... Uh, Policies put into effect like those at the border or Afghanistan withdrawal or the five, 3.5 to 5 trillion, however you count it, zero cost human infrastructure bill proposed by the Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party are not orchestrated due to low IQ, but rather very intentional, uh, very intentional policies actually not unlike the thieves who pick the pockets of visitors to the New York City streets in the games of three-card Monty. If you've ever seen those played, you think, ah, I should be able to pick the right card. 
every time the uh, the poor sucker that gets into the game loses his uh, loses the money he puts down. It's a no-win situation. Well, I'm suggesting uh, that the policies that we're seeing and the and the propaganda that comes your way every day, um, they're sort of like a three-card Monty. Regardless of the current and past policies that are leading to the social and economic decline of America, whether they're intentional or whether they're, uh, as David Stockman suggests, just out of idiocy, uh, the results are the same. So um, we, we will talk about some of these issues with, uh, with John Rubino in the second half of today's show. Right after our first commercial break, Quentin Henning will join me to give us an update on Lion One Metals. That's a company with near production potential uh, in uh, in Fiji, uh, the Tuva Two project, which is a very high grade, and now we're learning a much larger deposit than initially thought. So Quentin Henning will be with me right after the first commercial break. But right now, I'm happy to tell you that Michael Oliver has joined me once again to give us his latest takes on some of the key markets. Thanks for being with us again, Michael. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. Good. To, it's always good to have you, needless to say. Um, so the markets, uh, I look at these equity markets and I think, geez, you know, I mean, it looks to me, if you take a look at the chart, just the, the price chart, that we're looking at what seems to be a long-term topping process. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, yeah, I think so. I think we're topping right now. Um, now, we're very number-specific, though. In other words, we, when we analyze something, it's not just sort of broad stroke, oh, this is no good, this is good. We're looking at numbers, and we specified a initial breakdown number for the S&P over the last several weeks, and it adjusts each week. Uh, it's a mm-hmm. weekly adjustable number. <laughs> and two weeks ago, in the, there was a 90-mile-an-hour collapse early in the morning, uh, early last week, I think it was, and they got within four S&P points of our trigger number. Yeah. And they rallied and exploded off that low, you know, a good percent or two. And then uh, they keep repeatedly coming down toward our adjusted number, but not touching it. Mm-hmm. And this week it's at uh, 42.90, for example. It's uh, We're now 43.50 area. Uh, yeah. So it's about a, we're about a percent and a half above the number right now. But that number adjusts up each week, about 15 points. And we're not rallying off of it that much. In other words, we keep getting down close to the number. And you see a market that, that responds to your number. And it's not some big round number either. It's not like, you know, 4,300 or some rounded price number. It's a very specific number. Uh, and the market behaves like it means something. Like, it, I don't want to touch that. Like, it's a landmine. <laughs> it is. Now, we've got two levels on the S&P and on the NASDAQ. And if we break the first tier of uh, what we call momentum breakage levels, we think there's a good chance that there'll be enough weakness following that to in turn break annual momentum. Now, that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. It's a very long-term metric. And uh, so right now, we can't say it's top. We think it's probably in the process. Uh, when they hit the first tier of our numbers, we'll then say, okay, this process is probably now underway. Mm-hmm. I don't look for a crash. I look for an arm wrestling match, uh, much like we've seen over the last, let's say, month of decline. Um, I think that the Fed will try to defend the market. It has to. It's an asset category that's essential for many reasons uh, for Fed policy to be sustained. And I'm sure if it uh, is perceived to be in trouble, the Fed's going to do everything they can to keep it out of trouble. Uh, so I think that will help support the market, but it will not stop a downturn. Mm-hmm. Um, it will just make it erratic. <laughs> uh, now, in the process, the reverse side of that, I think gold will be a beneficiary and probably T-bonds for a short-term period of time on the upside, both of them. Um, 
gold, you know, we'd been badgered. Well, we had the March low, which we thought was the low. We even put parentheses around the, the low. And since then, since June, there have been multiple sell-offs, mostly wrapped around the notion of Fed tapering. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if I were a bear selling into this market, I'd be getting a little frustrated now. Mm-hmm. You know, June, July, August, September, now we're in October, and we're still not breaking the market down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we drove the miners below recent lows. They popped back above them. Silver went down and took out its low of the last 14 months by all of 50 cents and immediately popped back above it. Mm-hmm. But you're not, if you're a bear, you're really not making money. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're being teased. And the clock is ticking, and, you know, let's see it then, okay? <laughs> and I don't see it. I think their clock has run out, the bear clock. And right now we've got some numbers above the gold market and above the silver market that are not far above. A couple percent, frankly, in gold and uh, maybe uh, 5% or so in silver. If they can get the markets up to those levels, we think we can then circle and put an exclamation mark on the price charts, uh, on the momentum charts, and say, that was it. Mm-hmm. It's over. We're now resuming the upside. Mm-hmm. So, again, it's just like the S&P the other way. We've got numbers. They're not far away. Uh, we think that the uh, monetary metal bears are, are, should be getting frustrated right about now. I would be if I were short. Um, because they've thrown everything they can at gold, and they can't seem to break it down. Mm-hmm. Well, Michael, you know, we, we're seeing oil prices, a lot of commodity prices really taking off, but energy, of course, is the most important one mm-hmm. in terms of the, uh, the economy. And mm-hmm. you have to wonder, you know, to what extent uh, interest rates have been rising, and to what extent that that is, you know, the Fed likes us to believe that they're in charge, and so the tapering, you know, they talk tapering and all that, and the market goes, ooh, you know, and, but is it really the Fed, or is it the forces of markets? We've got inflation mm-hmm. rising. Is the Fed proactive, or are they reacting to market forces, I guess is what I'm uh, asking. They're reacting, and, then, and, and they don't control right. the long end of the market. You know, the 30-year and the 10-year stuff, it's a bit out of their reach in terms of uh, corralling and giving it direction. Uh, they, in fact, impact the very short-term stuff, of course, we know. But uh, the 30-year bond has been, I think, probably declining because of that rising commodity price inflation. We've always had inflation. It's just gone into other things like stock market. Right. Mm-hmm. Now the inflation is going into commodities. Why? Because asset managers and investors are shifting, shifting their preferences out of what they consider to be a high-risk old bull market, stock market, into an upturn in commodities, which have depressed, been depressed since 2015 at very low levels. So it's a, it's a risk-reward decision, uh, and it's beyond the control of the Fed. So, uh, but, so, but a short-term rally in T-bonds we don't regard as something that's based on the inflation issue. I think it's based more on that, that simple issue of a place to park your money. Mm-hmm. You know, if, you're, if you're moving it out of stocks, where are you going to put it? Mm-hmm. Uh, some people put it in gold and T-bonds. Some people just put it in T-bonds. But I think mm-hmm. it's a flight to safety issue if we see T-bonds rally. Mm-hmm. And that, that would mean that you flip it upside down, it probably means the S&P is in trouble. Mm-hmm. So all these pieces fit together, and I think we're very close to uh, triggering them all. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, gold mm-hmm. up, T-bonds up, and stock market down. All right. Well, at some point, if inflation continues to rise, and I think there's evidence that it will, um, you know, if they keep printing money and keep pumping money in, now I know the Fed talks tapering, but, you know, like, they're, how far are they going to taper? I mean, as you said, they have to protect the stock market. They have to protect well, it for let's various reasons. It gets weak uh, in the next month or two. 
okay? Yeah, And right. get 7 10% off the high, for example, mm-hmm. uh, where people start to get nervous. Yeah. Uh, Biden's got a lot of problems, you know, political popularity problems, okay? Mm-hmm. That's all he needs is the stock market to get wobbly now. Right. And there's a decision coming up in February, we all know, whether mm-hmm. Powell's going to continue or not. Mm-hmm. And if Powell is perceived to be part of the reason the stock market's going down because of his taper talk, I'm going to bet he doesn't get, get the job again. Uh-huh. I'm going to bet he will. Uh, so right. that, that yeah. could end very easily. Uh, who will? Who, who's, who's sitting on the sidelines wanting that job now? Uh, who what's her name? Is her name Brainerd? Is that correct? Uh, oh, oh maybe that's the one, yeah. yeah I just don't yeah, know who, I mean, yeah, why I'm would sorry, anyone in the their name right mind? Me, but she's a woman, she's very much a yes, friend that's of money. That, so yeah, that yeah. would be uh, what the, mm-hmm. that wing of the party would definitely like to see done. Powell out and right. her in. So right. uh, not, not that that ultimately changes the long-term direction. The Fed prints all the time anyway. So, you know, yeah. we're, we're, it's nickel dime. But uh, anyway, it's... Powell's not got a, a sure thing here. No, I wouldn't think so, and he might want to stop talking taper yeah, pretty soon. Yeah, he may uh, quickly he may. cease the yeah. taper speeches. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's hard to say, but I mean, if uh, equity, I mean, if we keep seeing higher right, higher inflation rates, higher interest rates, and then they have to print more money to try to suppress the interest rates, inflation, I mean, you know, monetary and fiscal policy both put into into place like no time since the 1970s. I remember Arthur Burns and G. William Miller and that inflationary route that we had then. It looks an awful lot like like that time, except then we could uh, it could be corrected by high interest rates, which Volcker mm-hmm. did, but I guess nobody believes that's possible now. Well, there's one and, thing they can't control, and that's the energy situation, and I think it's headed for a real crisis this winter, and mm-hmm. not just because of the winter, but because of what they've done to uh, natural gas and oil supplies globally. Right. Uh, right. th- there's power shutdowns going on around the world, including in Germany, uh, India. You know, UK's got problems. Uh, transportation has been fouled up because of this. Uh, this is uh, part three of Atlas Shrugged. Uh, things are coming mm-hmm. apart, and they seem to be unlinked, but they are, uh, because they're, they're the result of decades of certain government policies in various arenas, whether it's energy policy, taxation, uh, artificially low interest rates, all these things have created errors, and the errors are starting to be exposed. And I think the energy rally we're seeing now, which is going to get quite a bit stronger in our assessment over the next several months, quite a bit, that destroys a lot of corporations' profit margins right, right. badly. Uh, right. They've gone from extremely low energy costs over the last several years to suddenly it's a factor. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, steel plants in the U.K. are having to shut down because of power costs. I mean, I, I've read plenty of stories about various companies that have nothing to do directly with the banking sector or anything financial, but simply producing products and consuming energy, mm-hmm. and their profits are going away. Right. So lack so, of supply. Uh, that, that's going to affect the stock market as well. So. Well, lack of supply, higher prices, shortages, uh, more money printed to try to correct everything, which is the only thing the Fed knows to do. These people think that they can create money, and money doesn't. The money supply has nothing to do with inflation. You know, that's what they're believing. That's what the Keynesians are yeah, believing. Well, so that is inflation. <laughs> I mean, uh, well, yeah. Atlas Shrugged is one thing. Um, you suppose Joe Biden's ever read it? <laughs> oh, probably not. Uh, no, but, uh, no. The, the main point of the third section of Atlas Shrugged, which is titled A is A, is. Uh, that these events that accumulated and accumulated, uh, they suddenly, when they come unraveled, they come unraveled rapidly. 
yeah, shockingly, seemingly well. uncoordinated, but in fact they are. And yeah. I think we're, we're on the edge of that right now. Yeah. Well, we better okay. be ready, I guess. Yeah. All right, Michael. Well, thank, thank you, um, I guess, uh, for, yep. for that <laughs> warning. You, but it is what it is, and we want to know it the truth. So. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Michael. Bye-bye. All right, folks. Well, we're going to go to break now, but don't go away. Dr. Quentin Henning will be with us to give us an update on Lion One. Uh, that's a company that I think you want to keep your eyes on. Lion One Metals, it's a, a great story. Um, very high-grade gold deposit that's going to get a lot larger the way things look. So we'll be right back with Dr. Quentin Henning. Firefox Gold is actively exploring in Finland, where recent discoveries have sparked a new gold rush. Firefox controls a major portion of a prospective gold belt, giving the company a distinct advantage for exploration and strategic partnerships. The company's strong international leadership team, combined with its Finland-based exploration specialists, will put Firefox on the crest of the coming wave of gold discoveries. Firefox Gold trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol FFOX. Go to firefoxgold.com to subscribe for updates. SK Mining Corp. Trading under the symbol ESK on the TSX Venture and ESKYF on the OTCQB is a mineral exploration company targeting precious metals, rich VMS deposits in the heart of British Columbia's Golden Triangle. SK Mining controls a prospective land package totaling 130,000 acres, which lies across a geologic trend that once hosted the prolific SK Creek Mine. With a world-renowned geological team, funding in place, and shareholders such as Eric Sprott, SK Mining is on the cusp of a world-class discovery. Go to skmining.com to subscribe for updates. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Dr. Quentin Henning. He's with us this time to talk about Lion One Metals. Uh, we last spoke to Quentin about this company on August 3rd of this year, uh, and they've had some pretty good news since then, and uh, we'll get to that in just a minute. I'll tell you that uh, Lion One Metals trades in Canada under the symbol LIO, L-O-M-L-F in the U.S., uh, 156.2 million shares. I saw it trading at around 90 cents in U.S. money. Earlier today, that would give it a market cap of about $140 million. Well, it's a, it, it's, it's, it's a company that over the past number of years developed over quite a few years. In fact, I think I can remember maybe going back 10 years or so when the company first uh, started to explore and develop uh, the Tuvatu mine project at that time in, in Fuji. Uh, and it was very high grade. They did some uh, early economic studies that looked very robust, but it was kind of on the small side. And now more recently, uh, it, uh, it seems as though the prospects for something much larger are there, which, of course, could make it 
a whole different uh, a whole different story. One that I think is is much more exciting uh, than the initial story. As good as it was, um, big big is better than small for economies of scale in the mining business. And uh, Quentin Henning is one of those uh, people that really does focus on large scale operations. So I'm sure that's one of the reasons uh, he's really excited about Lion One. Thanks for joining us again, Quentin. Always a pleasure, Jay. It's always great to have you with us, and uh, I, I do want to ask you about, um, there was some numbers that were put out mm, not too long ago. I don't have the date in front of me um, exactly, but it was, uh, headline number was 8.48 meters grading 10.24 grams per ton. Uh, tell us what, the company's been drilling both deep drill holes in the search for this large uh, deposit, uh, but it's also been doing some drilling in preparation for production. I believe uh, from its uh, from its known deposit, the one that is uh, that it outlined some years ago. Uh, talk to us about what the company. What do you know now, and what has management learned since we last spoke on August third? Certainly, look. Uh, there's actually three prongs to the exploration right now, and it, the company does have uh, six drills uh, on the property. So. You know, this is a, an aggressive program, and it, with a large number of drills, it gives them ability to, to tackle all three of these prongs. So, like you said a minute ago, uh, the first prong is to do infill in and around the areas that they plan to go ahead and develop into uh, their test mine, their test scale mine. Uh, this is kind of a short-term goal, you know, say in the next year and a half or so, uh, they anticipate going ahead and developing a, a mine that maybe does 300, 350 tons a day, something like that as a, a, a proof of concept of being able to mine these high-grade uh, veins. All right, so that infill drilling is very important. Uh, the headline hole that you mentioned, the one that was about 8.5 meters at a little over 10 grams per ton, was uh, a result uh, from that drilling. And they're seeing a lot, lot of numbers, uh, you know, high grade numbers like they they have in the past. So you can look through the news release and you can see there's mm -hmm. there's a lot more beyond just that one. Yes. Mm -hmm. So okay, so that's that's the first prong, and that's a very important prong at this point for the company because uh, you know this is a, a big step for the company to make this commitment. Uh, but they do have uh, ongoing drilling of the deeper high grade feeder that was encountered last year. So uh, to kind of you know turn the clock back a bit and remind people uh, the company encountered a very high-grade structure nearly 200 meters below the existing Tuvatu resource. Uh, it was an intercept that was uh, kind of astounding. It was about 12.7 meters of 56 grams gold, and it told us that there, there was a high-grade feeder structure uh, likely feeding all of the, the shallower uh, high-grade veins that uh, constitute the resource, all right? But uh, the drilling that's been done since then, including more recent holes, is starting to expand that zone. It's starting to become clear that this is a pretty robust uh, structure. Uh, it's starting to show good continuity down down dip, uh, along strike, and it's basically remains wide open in those directions as well. Mm -hmm. The drilling uh, that's been done here recently Mm -hmm. uh, also hit some very nice numbers. I think 3.7 meters of around 25 grams per ton. Mm -hmm. And it, it really is uh, starting to, to hold together. Like all of the drill holes down in that regime are seeing high-grade uh, mineralization of this this type. It's really uh, some of the highest grades that have been seen uh, of any of the loads on the property. And it's, you know, it's a pretty stout structure. It's a, 
a bit wider and a bit more, uh, we'll call it beefier than mm-hmm. what you see up, up top. So this is a very encouraging outcome. Um, that is a main focus for the company because it is immediately below the existing resource and, and uh-huh. it could play an important part in developing a mine. So um, this is the second goal. The third goal, the third prong of their exploration, is to test the uh, greater Nebula complex. Okay, the the system at Tuvatu is uh, basically in the southern third, we'll call it, of the Nebula caldera. The Nebula caldera is uh, a volcanic edifice, if you will, uh, that's not, not all that old. It's about four and a half million years old, but uh, they've only explored a very small part of it so far. So uh, the company is starting to, to apply drilling to new targets, in particular Banana Creek right now, where some deep holes are being put underneath uh, areas where a lot of surface samples turned up high-grade veins, similar to Tavatu. So there's one one area. But they'll, they'll test other targets uh, over time. Uh, especially in the areas between Banana Creek and Tuvata. There's roughly mm-hmm. three and a half kilometers distance between those. And there's a lot of areas where high-grade surface samples indicate there's high-grade veins, you know, Tuvati-style veins. So uh, the goal here is to, to see if we do have what could be a multimillion-ounce gold system uh, through that kind of, we'll call it Greenfields-level exploration. Mm-hmm. All right, so um, does the company have in mind a time for the test mining when, when that might get underway? They have permitting, uh, I think, permits in place, right? They do. Uh, the Tuvatu uh, mining lease is fully permitted, mm-hmm. and uh, they're, they're moving now towards, well, if, if, let me back up just a second. They added some personnel yeah. back in August, very critical step for the company. They mm-hmm. apl- uh basically appointed uh, COO, uh, Chief Operating Officer, Patrick Hickey, to their team. Uh, Patrick, I've known for many years, he's uh, worked at Newmont and re- built and ran Bato Hija, which is a mine in Indonesia. He also uh, worked for other major mining companies, including Sumitomo, and helped build the Embodiby mine in Madagascar. So if there's one thing Patrick knows how to do, it's build mines. Wow. Uh, in remote areas, uh, you know, particularly islands. All right? So mm-hmm. this is a great addition. Uh, and then they've added Sergio Catalani, uh, Vice President of Exploration. Sergio uh, is uh, very accustomed to drilling out advanced stage projects like this uh, in preparation for mine. He, he's worked for a Cisco. He's worked for uh, more recently for uh, Castle at Castle Mountain, drilling mm-hmm. out uh, what is now Equinox's deposit. Yes. Uh-huh. And, you know, he's a great addition here. So uh, they beefed up their team, and the timeline that you asked about is now being set. Okay, I would say uh, they're not quite uh, having official dates in place, mm-hmm. but I would say in the next year and a half, mm-hmm. maybe two, uh, they anticipate having a small-scale test test scale mine in place and this again on the order of three or four hundred tons per day uh, but should be cash flow positive uh, produce on the order of maybe 25 to 30 thousand ounces and importantly can be expanded it's it's designed so that it can be uh, upscaled uh, you know dependent on the the success of the the test level operation mm-hmm. it's very rugged terrain there I believe isn't it uh, Quentin and, and in terms of Putting being able to build a mill that's big enough to handle everything, uh, I guess that's all been engineered and figured out, or we wouldn't be talking about testing, yes. test mining. That, yeah, 
the the test scale again three three or four hundred tons a day can easily fit on the existing uh, already prepared uh, mill mill site. Okay, they've actually laid out the uh, compacted earth foundations and stuff for a mill site there. Uh, that's no problem. In fact, the uh, the thing can be upsized uh, once once time comes too. There's plenty of room. It is rugged terrain, but uh, there is enough plenty of room to to operate here. You know, they've got uh, room for their portals. Uh, they'll have probably two two declines down into the mine to access the ore body. Uh, they've got mill site already prepared. Uh, this is really a project that's uh, maybe uh, you know you could even call it maybe twenty or thirty percent on on its way to uh, can, you know full construction. Mm-hmm. And uh, the company, as I understand, is well funded with something like fifty six million dollars. So how far will that take them? Uh, yeah, that uh, that's uh, true. They they got a lot of money through the financing they did last year. Uh, they also saw a warrant exercise, put them in a really good position around fifty six million Canadian. And that, uh, that money will allow them to explore and also uh, undertake most of this uh, test scale mine development over the next couple of years. So that, that leaves the company with, you know, say a couple of years before they need to go seek finance. Uh, you know, the qu- questions around costs for a test mill and so forth mm-hmm. haven't been entirely settled. You know, uh, mm-hmm. they're, they're working on the costs and engineering around that. Uh, once that decision is made, then we'll have better sight on exactly how much money is going to be required to build build a mine. Mm-hmm. And probably you're going to uh, oh, to go to a test mine, a test mining operation, uh, and then and then uh, obviously we're looking at something potentially much much bigger than that. Well, just in summing up here, Quentin, what would you say the investors should keep their eyes on, and what should they be watching for? Yeah, look, uh, there's uh, because we have a lot of exploration. There's going to be a steady stream of results coming out for the foreseeable future. They got all the rigs operating. Uh, COVID is well under control now in Fiji. You know, it was locked down pretty tightly, but now uh, the country has uh, undertaken a lot of vaccinations. But they've also seen a, a wave of COVID. Basically, uh, they're you know they're kind of in the position, kind of like the United States, where they're in open up mode. Uh, so that's re- really good. It means we can continue exploration, see a lot of news flow from that. But then here soon, probably in the next couple of months, you'll start to see some more data and information about moving towards that test scale mine. I think you'll start to see some news flow around that as well as the costs and so forth. So it's a, a lot of excitement to, to look forward to. It's a company that's really uh, you know, moving ahead in spite of current conditions and and i think will be very successful at building a uh, a small scale mine which can grow and become uh, a much larger scale mine over time and we we really have to do that exploration to make sure we um, we see sight on on rock to, to build that kind of a story mm-hmm. yeah i mean it's uh obviously the economics of scale are very dramatically improved with uh, with a larger higher grade deposit than a, than a small higher grade deposit but very very good grades there i think do you recall what more or less what the average grade was in their preliminary economic study or their yeah early yeah they, they announced a preliminary economic study back in i think it was september of last year it was a revision over the previously uh done study and i believe that the grades anticipated grades this is with dilution and so forth are on the order of uh, eight or nine grams per ton mm-hmm uh, but, you know, this high-grade 
feeder that's been found at depth, if that comes into the picture, that could be a pretty big game changer. You know, could you could see significantly higher grades uh, if that comes into the to the story. All right. Well, we'll have to leave it go with that, Quentin. Thank you very much for that update. Uh, it is a, it is a story that, like many of these junior mining companies, the share prices are really down a lot from where they were. And uh, I don't think there's anything on the economic horizon that suggests that gold isn't a good thing, a good asset to own now. It's very depressed compared to most others. And like many others, it's real. It's tangible. Um, and uh, somebody pointed out the other day that the only asset that you can buy that doesn't have some sort of risk with energy is gold or maybe silver. But, you know, if you want to buy Bitcoin, you better have electricity, you know, so almost everything else. So I think that's people have to keep that in mind. And, um, you know, it's like when, when nobody wants them, uh, that's the time to buy them. I think it was Bernard Baruch said, I, you know, and he was successful because he bought them when nobody else wanted them and he sold it when everybody wanted it. So maybe now's a good time to look at these. Thank you so much, Quentin. For being with us. All righty. Folks, we do have to go to break now, but uh, John Rabino will be back with me after we come back, so don't go away. Lion One Metals is focused on high-grade gold in Fiji, led by legendary Canadian financier Walter Barakoff. Lion One is permitted for production and drilling for discoveries in one of the most exciting high-grade gold projects in the prolific South Pacific Ring of Fire. Lion One trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol LIO and on the OTCQX under the symbol LOMLF. Go to our website at liononemetals.com for more information about Lion One Metals and high-grade gold in Fiji. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Training Hard Times Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Really pleased to have John Rabino with me uh, once again. Actually, he's here today pinch hitting for David Stockman, who, due to a last minute commitment, uh, wasn't able to join us. Uh, so thanks, John. Thanks for, for coming on again. Oh, hey, Jay. Always happy to come on and talk to you. Well, it's, you're a great relief to me, I'll tell you, and uh, always appreciated. And I know our listeners love hearing what you have to say. I've titled today's show, uh, Playing Three-Card Monty with President Biden. Uh, you know, John, you, as a former New Yorker, you worked as a 
I guess, as a bond analyst on Wall Street for a while. I don't know if those guys, as guys would come along and set up their crates with the cards, the three-card money games, they would try to suck people into playing. Have you, do you ever see that on the streets of New York? Do you recall oh, that? Sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I never tried to win, though, because I assumed the game was rigged. <laughs> I watched, and uh, I figured, oh, that should be really easy. Um, but then I watched other people playing, and every one of them got snookered. So, uh, no, it's uh, it, it, it looks so easy, but it wasn't easy, obviously. And from what I understand, uh, the dealers never lose in these cases. And it seems to me that's the way it is with politicians as well. Um, and, you know, the Biden administration is telling us they, they have a $3.5 trillion, I guess, so-called human infrastructure bill that they're urging us, trying to get really, really trying hard to get it approved. There seems to be some separation within the Democratic Party to, to moving forward on it. Um, but $3.5 trillion, it's not going to cost us anything, he tells us. Um, what are your thoughts? Well, um, the idea that um, government is lying to us and we we should be outraged is getting a little old, right? Because yeah. that's been happening for so many years that, that you, you could be outraged all day long if you listen to the government continuously yeah, because they're always lying, you know? And this is another one that, uh, um, you know, I, th I think they feel like they're the people who are on their side to begin with will cut them a lot of slack and that allows them to say things that aren't true and get away with it. Because, you know, with the Democrats, the mainstream media uh, will basically let them do and say pretty much anything mm -hmm. because the alternative, you know, the Republicans is, is that's such a horrendous idea for most of the mainstream media that uh, they, they really don't fact check Democrat yeah. politicians. Um, with the exception of Fox, which is the opposite, you know, they, they do it the other way around. But um, yeah, so, okay, um, inflation is transitory and, uh, and $3.5 trillion of new social spending slash infrastructure spending, spending can be paid for with the resulting economic growth combined with tax increases. You know, those are just things that are made up or, or let's put it this way. It's not necessarily a complete lie as much as it is wishful thinking on the part of the people who are saying it, because who knows, you know, you can't predict the future. Therefore, well, maybe this could turn out that way. You know, maybe inflation that is now running at uh, eight or 9% in a lot of sectors in the U S maybe it'll just go away next year. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's possible. And, uh, and we won't know about the infrastructure bill, whether it actually pays for itself until it's completely implemented 10 years from now. And by that time, half the people that were paying attention will have retired and stopped paying attention or they'll be dead or they'll be doing, you know, it, it doesn't matter. Yeah. So it, it's really important for us, I think, to save our outrage for things that are not business as usual. You know, when they surprise us with something that's, that's even more horrendous when, than what they normally do, that's, that's a good time to be outraged. But this stuff is just business as usual in the markets. And, you know, the whole, um, don't worry about deficit thing goes all the way back to Ronald Reagan. You know, his tax cuts were going to pay for themselves. And, um, and then George W. Bush, no problem. We'll, you know, we'll cut taxes on the rich and that'll generate lots of economic growth, blah, blah, blah. You know, and, and so both sides do it. They both lie to us. And yeah. 
Oh, that's for sure. You know, that's what happens in late stage societies where you're getting close to collapse and the only way to prop everything up is to fool everybody. So mm-hmm. it, it's just a, a sign of our times. Yeah. Keep uh, keep people believing that the system is solvent. It's, a, it's just fine. Uh, otherwise, they'll run for the hills and it will be a self-fulfilling prophecy, I suppose. But so I think that they're counting the Biden administration on the 3.5 trillion. They're counting on 2.1 trillion to be covered by taxing the rich. Well, what happens when they tax the rich? I don't know. We saw uh, who was it that moved from California to Texas just this week? I guess it's uh, Elon Musk. Tesla. Elon Musk. Right. Right. So that is not yeah. what happened. But the but the but the point is, of course, what they're trying to do is get a global taxing scheme together so that people can't go from one country to the next. In other words, the people that are in power want to try to take away any sort of uh, freedoms from individuals, I guess, essentially. Well, yeah, but you, you actually can't raise taxes dramatically on the rich for two reasons. One is that they, they'll evade them. I mean, if, if uh, there's, say, $10 million at stake um, in uh, income that will be taxed or not taxed, uh, the, the rich guy is just going to call in his accountant and say, hey, lose that $10 million of income. My marginal income has to go down by $10 million. And the, the accountant will say, okay, we'll buy you some oil wells and some cattle ranches, you know, we'll, we'll depreciate them up front. And, you know. and so the, the income that um, tax increasers think is going to be there just disappears when you try to raise taxes dramatically. And so taxes don't actually generate any new income. They just shift um, for the government. They, they mm-hmm. just shift the income that's out there to be taxed into different places that aren't taxed. Uh, the other thing is that all the major politicians now, left and right and center, uh, are financed by the same handful of rich people. You know, the, mm-hmm. Wall Street is the biggest uh, donator of campaign funds to the Democrats as well as to the Republicans. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing with big pharma. Name any industry you want to, and and they are financing both parties' candidates. So neither party can do anything to cross these guys, or else they'll just get regime change. You know, they call it now... Um, um, Oh, primaried. You will get primaried in order uh-huh. to run somebody from your party against, against you, you. Yeah. with big money backing, mm-hmm. and you'll get kicked out of office if you try to cross these guys. And they know that. So the, the idea that we're going to raise taxes sufficiently to cover $3.5 trillion of spending is ludicrous. Yeah. And here's where it breaks down. Here's where we go authoritarian, because uh, that you know frequently governments come to power with that kind of a promise, and they try yes. to act on it. And they find they can't get the money from rich people, so they don't want to give up on their programs, so they move down the economic ladder and start taxing the middle class really aggressively. And the middle class try to avoid those taxes, and then the government um, creates a police force to go get the money from the middle class, and boom, you're in an authoritarian country. You know? And that's, mm-hmm. it happens very quickly mm-hmm. and could easily happen here again. Yeah, it sure seems so. Uh, the taxes, uh, the middle class usually gets hosed pretty badly, and and of course it isn't just the taxes that we see; it's the in, the uh, the invisible tax of inflation. So, uh, if if they can't raise all that money to pay for these programs, the two point one trillion from the rich and another and another all kinds of games, uh, three card money type games that are played in the, with these numbers as well. So. Uh, if they they just print money, right? They'll print money, and then we have inflation. And we saw this in the '70s. I can, you know, I'm older than you, John. I remember very well what the '70s were like with G. William Miller and Arthur Burns pumping money into the system like mad. That was after we went off the gold standard, so they could do it. 
And um, and then we had double-digit inflation. We had also, of course, oil prices. And uh, Michael was on with us a little earlier, and he was talking about how he thinks that we're just starting to see rising energy prices that are going to make life pretty difficult, uh, potentially, this winter for a lot of people. But you have the, this, you know, these prices are starting to rise, which is re- the real tax on the middle class. And these rich people they were going to get money from, not only do they not tax the rich as they expect or as they claim they will, but those guys don't feel the pain of inflation like average middle class people do. Well, see, this is, if we're talking about outrage, this is where we should direct our outrage. Because, yeah, monetary and fiscal policy, as it's set up right now, benefits. It doesn't, it's not just neutral. It doesn't just bypass the rich. It actually makes the rich richer Uh while squeezing the middle class and and basically anybody who's trying to, um, to save a little bit of money because um, uh, aggressively easy money means low interest rates, which means your savings account doesn't pay you anything, but your stocks and bonds go up. Well, who owns all the stocks and bonds and real estate? It's the rich. So they make, um, tremendous amounts of new money. What was it th- during the pandemic? It was some number like 40 trillion extra dollars flowed into the 1%. In other words, wow. they got $40 trillion richer. It was, it was some number like that, some crazy wow. number. That, yeah. Uh, whereas the rest of the country got a little bit poorer during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's just the way it's been going for quite a while now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there really isn't any end in sight because the government perceives that it only has one tool, which is easy money, whenever there's any kind of trouble. Uh, And um, they would probably say the fact that easy money helps the rich at the expense of everybody else is just a coincidental side effect. But I would say it's a feature, not a bug of the system. Like this was planned all along. You know, the, uh, uh, the, the banking system, when it took over the government, had in mind a world where everybody's encouraged to borrow crazy amounts of money and the government responds to that increasing debt with lower and lower interest rates, making the rich already rich or, or, or even richer. So, uh, you know, I think it's playing out exactly the way, um, to the extent that it was planned, what these guys expected. And uh, yeah. and I don't know what the solution is unless some kind of a crisis is so serious that it causes us to reevaluate our opinion of the people in charge. But that's what's going to have to happen. Yeah. Well, they'll, uh, one thing they don't want people to realize is the connection between printing money and inflation. And so there's always, and this was true in the 70s, and Milton Friedman came along and reminded us that, no, no, the real reason you have inflation, you know, oil prices may be going up, but guess what? If you weren't printing so much money, they couldn't go up the way they are. You, prices are going up because you're giving these uh, these, you know, these units of currency that that enable demand to take place, even though supply is shrinking. So guess what? Prices go up, but they don't want people to think about that, uh, and probably because of just what you pointed out, the the it's, it works very well. I mean, after all, a, a 1913 I think occurred after J.P. Morgan didn't want to really have to bail out the banking system again, and so we saw in 2008, of course, it was sort of privatize the profits and socialize the losses for the bankers, right? So the whole thing is stacked and obviously uh, in favor of, of the ruling elite and the rich and the wealthy people. Uh, but where, where is this going to go, John? I mean, it's um, we got an election coming up in a couple of years. You would think uh, there could be some ramifications for it. I don't know. Well, yeah, I think um, midterm elections are coming up and, yeah. I, and normally – the party in power loses some seats in the House and Senate. 
And right now, the House and Senate are so um, so closely divided that even a small loss um, flips that House um, of Congress over to the other party. So we're liable to see a divided government going forward after the uh, the next elections, which is part of the reason that uh, the, the Democrats are so anxious to get everything done now, because they, they recognize that there's a good chance that they lose their ability to just ram through legislation um, in another year, another little more than a year. Uh, and... You know, I, that, that to me is kind of a hopeful thing because, in general, the less this government can do, the less damage they can do. Because it's not like they're doing a lot of good stuff out there. You know, maybe they, they they'll invade a few fewer countries if they're divided, and and maybe monetary and fiscal policy a little bit will be a little bit more restrained because they're each watching the other. You know, each party is is trying to restrain the other's worst impulses. Uh, so that might be helpful. And then the next election, uh, I kind of think, uh, you know, I'll go way out on a limb now and say that um, Ron DeSantis of Florida is probably going to be the next president, wow. uh, barring some kind of scandal, because, um, uh, first of all, he fits the profile. You know, he's a, a swing state governor. And second of all, he's he's kind of on the side of medical freedom, which I think is is a politically trending idea. You know, probably 70% of the people a year ago were all in favor of, of whatever vaccine mandate, et cetera, et cetera, had to be done because they were so afraid of this the pandemic. And I think that's shifting. And so I think being on the side of personal freedom will play very well at the time of the next presidential election. Uh, and so we could... Uh, at least as far as the, uh, you know, the COVID lockdowns and things like that, that, that will be an improvement. But I don't think we should um, hold out any hope that Republicans will be any better about managing the financial side of things than the Democrats. So, well, think, you know, yeah. we're, you know, we, we've got a gigantic financial crisis coming no matter what. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there, there are small political things we can do in the meantime as a country that might improve things for a big chunk of the, the population. But basically, we've got this giant crisis coming and there's nothing we can really do to stop that because the numbers are already unmanageable. You know, we've already borrowed too much debt. We cannot manage it. We have only the tool of easy money to lean against a deflationary crash. Oh, we should probably talk about uh, Evergrande in China. Oh, yes. Uh, we're yes. on that subject. Yeah. Huh? I mean, where is that standing now? Because that erupted in the middle of September, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, I haven't heard about it in the last few days too much. But where, well, where is that stand? The short part of the story is that China's real estate market is much bigger in relation to its economy than the U.S. real estate market, which is to say China's real estate market is immense. And and it, it was very crooked. You know, there were lots of, of financial scams going on within that market, lots of money being spent and borrowed that shouldn't have been spent or borrowed. And so now it's starting to blow up. Evergrande is the first domino to fall. It's a gigantic um, real estate developer that got way, way over leveraged. And now it's falling apart. And that's pulling down all the other real estate developers in a market that depends desperately on real estate. So this could be very serious. Uh, And it could go one of two ways. One, they let those companies fail, which is what they should do. But uh, they they get a really nasty recession and possibly civil unrest, et cetera, et cetera, for the next couple of years as a result. Or they try to bail these guys out um, at the cost of a massive new binge of currency creation, which is probably going to be bad for inflation and bad for the local currency. And, and, 
so you take on a lot of risks in that direction and there's no real middle way you know there's nothing you can actually do to to get yourself from here to some placid organically growing future um, without a lot of pain so uh, China has one of those two things in front of it, it looks like, and Evergrande is the the name at the center of this tsunami. Yeah, I heard there are a couple of other companies that maybe are on the verge of default as well. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I saw, John, I saw, I don't know, was it from your website perhaps, a, a chart that showed that the uh, on average the wealth of Chinese people, 70% of it, or I think that was the number, in real estate compared to something like 30 or 35% in America, in the U.S. So obviously real estate, as you pointed out, is a much bigger part of their economy. And they build all these terrifically high, high-rise high buildings in which I understand many of them are still vacant over many years. So the economics, you know, you build it, it's not like a, a supply and demand uh, driven economy. It's like, you know, driv- you know, government can just spend money and build things and you know, without any realization of whether or not it's economically viable, it seems so. Just and, and you and you and you goose the numbers, and everybody's uh, has paychecks in their hands. So, but then if there's no production coming out of that, then you know, it doesn't work. Yeah, that was their vor- version of short-termism. You know, we have the same thing in the U.S., but they just put all their money on real estate. And they generated an economic miracle. Everybody's so impressed with China, but um, I, I don't think people realize it's what what amounts to seventy percent of the economy was wasted in a lot of cases. Where um, not only is nobody living in these buildings, but the buildings were made in such a shoddy way that they're going to fall apart before anybody can move into them. There, I posted a couple of videos on dollar collapse of people going around to building sites in China mm-hmm. and looking at, you know, the rebar, which is all, you know, rusty and spindly and not nearly as strong as it should be. And there was one where uh, somebody said they were using sticks in place of rebar to reinforce the concrete of the foundation oh. of some building. Um, you know, they were chopping down saplings <laughs> and sticking them in there. Uh, and and so, yeah, so a lot of this stuff will come to a head over the next few years when these buildings just start to fall apart. Well, with just a couple of minutes left here, John, I, I don't know if we have time to talk about this, but certainly what happens a lot of times, if there is civil unrest, those governments sometimes look to other uh, look look to other countries uh, and maybe get involved in, in conflicts overseas. Uh, and that certainly is something that I think a lot of people are concerned about now with Taiwan. And uh, Taiwan, if it were to go to China, could really be a problem, uh, I think, in terms of our uh, supply chain issues, which are really a big issue too now. Well, that would be the best case scenario in Taiwan's case if it only causes supply chain issues. But, right. uh, you know, we're kind of obligated to defend Taiwan, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that yeah. would be a nightmare. If we send our um, aircraft carriers right next to China, you know, where all their missiles are based and everything, and, and start a war with them, um, first of all, we probably wouldn't do very well. And second of all, um, you know, two nuclear powers in a shooting war. Uh, mm-hmm. When have we seen that? Have we ever seen that? Mm-hmm. I, I really don't know. We never we never had a shooting war with the Soviet Union, right? No. Oh, we came close in the Middle East, but we never did. So this would be a a completely new, completely horrific thing, and we're 
we're blithely blundering into stuff like that. So or, um, finances yeah. could be the least of our problem. Well, finances could be related to um, to a lot of other things. They're all sort of interrelated, I think. Uh, one thing we do know uh, in terms of what people should own in an inflationary environment is gold. And someone just pointed out that gold is now as cheap as it was in the at 1970 in 1970 and in 2000. If you look at the amount of money that's been created to pay for all these programs, governments want to uh, win votes with. John, I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it go at that. My engineer is telling me it's time to to cease. Uh, but thank you so much for stepping in for David Stockman today. And uh, you're always welcome here. It's always great to have you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jay. All right, folks. Well, next week uh, we're going to be back with you again. And uh, I'm going to have uh, Richard Mayberry as well as Dr. Roger Moss of Labrador Gold Corp, a company that's willing to, looks like another uh, very very promising uh, gold discovery uh, right next door to Newfound Gold's uh, multi, potentially multi-million ounce deposit. High grade, very exciting story. So uh, don't, we hope that you'll join us next week with Richard Mayberry and Dr. Roger Moss. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Labrador Gold is an exploration company focused on its flagship Kingsway project located in central Newfoundland Gold District. Labrador Gold's first phase drilling program has successfully identified high-grade gold mineralization, including a 3.6-meter intercept, grading 20.6 grams per ton gold, and 1.85 meters, grading 50.38 gram per ton gold. The company has approximately $35 million in the treasury and is led by a world-class team of CEO Roger Moss and technical advisors Sean Ryan and Quentin Henney.